You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast featuring the stories of amazing Black and Latino women in STEM. This season, in celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month, we are excited to highlight the empowering stories of Latinas in STEM. Stay tuned each week as we feature Latinas from a range of backgrounds within the STEM field, sharing how they've discovered their passions, overcame obstacles, and paved a way for their respective careers as women of color. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our final episode of season four of Technically 200. We have been featuring Latinas in STEM in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. And as Hispanic Heritage Month comes to an end, we want to celebrate and thank the powerful and empowering Latinas we have featured thus far. We have the lovely Miranda with us today. I'm so excited for you all to hear her story and to learn more about what it is that she does. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to her before we jump into things to introduce herself and share who she is and what it is that she does. Thanks, Selena. And hi, listeners. It's so nice to meet you all. So my name is Miranda Stratton. I am a person with a bunch of different titles and all this stuff, but really at the core of it, I'm just someone who is really excited and passionate about making spaces where people feel like they can belong and be their authentic selves in it. So that's kind of been my grounding place. It's something that I learned growing up in a large family. I have four younger sisters. So my identity as an older sister is very strong in me. And along the way, I also navigated through higher education as being the first person in my family or a first generation college student to go through and earn my bachelor's degree. We also experienced some financial hardships and sacrifices. And so technically we weren't low income by government standards, but those financial um, hardships that my family experienced has also shaped me into identifying as a former first generation low income college student where I earned my degree at the University of San Diego in biology. I'm a product of a bunch of pipeline programs that have been helpful to get people the tools and resources to go from one degree to the next. So while I was at USD, I was a McNair scholar, shout out to them. And they gave me the tools necessary to apply and earn my PhD at Stanford in 2019. I earned that degree in biology there. So with that, being able to pull from my experience being a woman of color, a former first-gen low-income college and grad student, and thinking about how we can create spaces where people belong, I now serve as the assistant director for biosciences diversity programs and the director of a summer research program, the Stanford Summer Research Program, Amgen Scholars Program. So that's a little bit about me. I'm excited to share more and hope that you all can find something in my story that resonates with you and can help you on your journey, whether it's going into science or just navigating. Thank you so much for sharing that, Miranda. You definitely have a wealth of experience that I'm so excited to dig a little deeper into. We have traditionally been starting our episodes this season talking a little bit about identity, but this episode is a little special because we are going to be featuring it on your podcast as well. So you spoke a little bit about your first generation low-income college student identity or student identity in general as you 
pursued higher education. Can you speak more about how that has led to some of the endeavors you're pursuing right now and more of the personal realm for you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's like many identities that we have. My first gen low-income student identity is one that I've realized over time, I can't just apply it in the classroom or in academic settings. It's really been a part of who I am and has shaped my whole outlook professionally and personally. And so I've been really fortunate to find folks who have similar lived experiences to me who are also first in their families or these trailblazers to go into higher education and We've found and bonded over the fact that our families were telling us, go get your degrees, um, but didn't have the tools and experience to help us get from applying to college to earning that degree. And so when we made it into our PhD programs, we were kind of finding our communities together, leaning on each other and building not just collaborations, but these strong communities where we can uplift and support one another and be able to survive this experience that was just completely unfamiliar to us. So after we earned our PhDs, my friends and I kept talking about, well, now what's next? How do we go through having been in school for so many years and now being in the professional world and thinking about things like buying a home or taking care of ourselves or just even how we can still maintain our authenticity and connection to who we are in these professional spaces. So that's when we started talking over the pandemic about forming this podcast, The Fly Collective, and just reflecting on our shared experiences being former fly students, being powerful women of color too, which is something that we didn't find that many people who look like us. So how can we share these experiences to help change who is in these settings and offer our experiences to others who are going through similar things or something different? I love the fact that that's grounded in community and it evolved organically amongst your tribe of other fly women. Also, that acronym is such a good way to reference, you know, that powerful background that really, I think, makes y'all those trailblazers. Like that lived experience, I think, is is definitely a a direct uh, attribute to everything y'all been able to accomplish. So I love that you've started a platform for that. I think it's so important to be bringing more awareness, but also to be sharing those voices. So shout out to y'all. So yes, we will have on today's episode, Fly Collective listeners, and in addition to our Code to College community and our Technically 200 podcast listeners as well. For our Fly Collective listeners, we'll be talking a little bit more about what Technically 200 is all about and what we do here at Code to College. So I'm very excited to have both of those groups merging together today. I want to start by establishing the theme of the season and also today's episode. We're featuring Latinas in STEM in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month. I would love for you to tell me a bit about your ethnic background and how you feel that ties into your overall identity. And this is something that we also talked about on one of our episodes of the Fly Collective is just navigating our identities and the intersections of these identities and how 
they shape our outlooks on life and also whether or not there's a need to fit into particular boxes that are assigned to us by others or internally. So my relationship with my ethnic background is a little bit complex. So I identify as Latina and a woman of color, like I mentioned a little earlier. I am Mexican and Filipina and also navigating what my white heritage means to me and what privileges may have been afforded by appearing as someone who can easily blend and or be ethnically ambiguous to others. We don't have time to get into it, but I could go on and tell you like about the awkward experiences I've had of people get like trying to guess my ethnicity like everywhere. But anyway, so my mom is Mexican American. My dad was adopted. He's Filipino American and white. And I mostly grew up with my connections to my Mexican heritage and culture. But it's a little complicated because I also am not a native Spanish speaker. So I've had these questions about, am I Mexican or Latina enough to be able to identify strongly with this? And the answer is yes. So that's where I'm at. I personally actually relate a lot to your story in that regard. And I, as I was thinking about this episode, really with the overarching theme of it being Hispanic Heritage Month, wanted to bring the question to the table to see too what your take on this is. But being identifying as mixed, multi-ethnic, I'm not sure which kind of what your terminology is or preferred terminology is for how you identify. But for me as well, at being a, a mixed woman of color, both Mexican and Black, I find it very interesting to approach these months where we are honoring our heritage and really, you know, wanting to be outspoken about my pride and, you know, my experience, but knowing that there's also another month coming where I'm like equally invested in and in, in conveying that, you know, to, you know, my friends, my loved ones, on my social media platforms, et cetera. So, it's Hispanic Heritage Month, Latinx Heritage Month. There's also Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in times like this. How do you, how do you feel when you think about your identity and, and being mixed? Yeah, I have in the past kind of been a little, I wouldn't say confused, but just like um, wondering and questioning how I fit in and where I fit in. And can I claim this you know, opportunity to celebrate my heritage and culture when I'm still learning about my um, heritage, like my Filipina heritage. So I have done a lot of subconscious reflecting and listening to other podcasts and absorbing information that are focused on conversations with race and ethnicity, like NPR Code Switch or um, Latinos Who Lunch was one of my favorite podcasts before they ended their five-year run this year. And being able to just listen to conversations about how there are these nuances or differences of being able to say, this is what it looks like to be Latina, to be Mexican, to be Filipina, to be a woman of color, and to wholeheartedly embrace them and make space to amplify the voices and experiences of folks who may not see themselves belonging with this identity. 
Yeah, for sure. I think it's so important to be continuing to get to know yourself and understand your your background, who you are developing as an individual. I think just like in this whole time of like where self-care and like self-reflection, self-awareness is really being pushed on social media platforms, but also thinking about our own identities when it comes to, you know, whether it's socioeconomic status, race, ethnic backgrounds, gender, etc. Yeah, exactly. And like also understanding that this reflection period and doing your best to be a person that is going to uplift others. Like there are going to be mistakes along the way. And at different points in your journey, you do have, or I have felt that I have questioned and wondered what my relationship has been to my identities and that's okay too. And when mistakes are made, just recognizing that a mistake was made, asking for forgiveness and not, not trying to amplify people's voices and lived experiences in a way that makes them feel othered or that they are on this awkward pedestal being the token spokesperson for their community. It's something that I know I've experienced feeling like I was othered and this happening in scientific situations too, where I was asked to, you know, speak on behalf of this community or that community. And it's awkward. It feels weird. It can hurt even when the intention behind it is assume like it's coming from this good place, if it, I can call it good, or like just this lack of understanding that I'm trying to do something good, but it's actually hurting someone in the process. So yeah, it's it takes a lot. And I'm really proud that Technically 200 is being able to offer this platform for folks who have identities like us and who don't fit into these cookie cutter descriptions or categories. Yeah, such a good segue. I wanted to, along with that, talk about, you know, what we do at Coaching College and Technically 200 and really dive into a little bit more of your professional background. And and I guess for our listeners today, want to just reemphasize what Technically 200 is all about. We are a podcast platform and community that's focused on highlighting the stories of Black and Latina women breaking barriers within STEM, essentially. And, And it's all about having our listeners who whether they are Black and Latina young women from the programs that you know we serve or other tech leaders and professionals seeking inspiration, encouragement, and community, we want to be able to provide a space for that. And beyond that, I, I think with Culture College, we're working to really create opportunities and access for youth of color, predominantly low income, to set them up on a pathway where they're going to be successful in STEM majors as well as careers. So with that, just a little bit of background on like who we are and what we do. But I'd love to hear from you, Miranda, a little bit more about growing up. You know, you grew up in San Diego. We've talked and established all of the intersectional identities that you identify with. Were you always interested in STEM? And I guess like how has that played a role in your pursuits of of a career in STEM at this point? Yeah, definitely excited to tell you more. My students will know I referred to us as STEM baddies. So just like other STEM baddies out there, I guess I have this origin story, not as grand as a Marvel or DC superhero character, but it's my story and I'm really proud of it. So I knew that I really enjoyed science when I was younger. 
and doing those elementary and middle school science fair projects was something that always captured my interest. But one of the critical moments where I really became interested in science and biology was when one of my sisters contracted a rare blood disease called hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH for short. It's this rare blood disease where your body's immune system, where there's certain white blood cells that attack other blood cells in your body. And there are two types of it. The type that she had was an acquired HLH infection where she had another viral infection that somehow triggered this rare blood disease. And that happened pretty early on when I was in high school where she was being treated for this rare blood disease by chemotherapy since there weren't any other known ways to treat it at the time. And so watching her go through that experience beyond wanting her, of course, to grow up and be healthy, which she thankfully has now, it made me wonder more about how these cells within her body were working in synchrony with one another to help her stay healthy why they were acting out of sync to cause this illness and what are they doing now to restore her health? And how do we learn more about the processes and mechanics of what it is at the cellular level that's happening when other rare diseases are happening? So that was a big one. Then my high school science teacher, knowing a little bit about that story, introduced me to a high school research internship program at the Scripps Research Institute, which was made for students coming from underrepresented backgrounds, similar backgrounds to the Code to College students that we were just talking about. So that was pretty cool because um, I got to say that my first job was doing research in a lab. And even though there's still pieces of it that I am still not sure what I did and looking back at my baby scientist high school poster. I was like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> I, oh, that's a really cute little graph I made there. Um, I was just really having a great time. And in this transformative experience, learning from mentors in my lab, Dr. Carlos Barbas's lab. So that was the early part of the origin story. I'm sure we can talk more about other parts of the story. So happy to hear that your sister uh, was able to make a full recovery from that. But you also mentioned pipeline programs earlier uh, as you were introducing yourself and then kind of establishing some of your background. I'm curious what role like pipeline programs and also mentors played in this journey for you, especially being a first generation student. I think typically access is limited to resources, to networks, to opportunities that are going to set you up for, you know, the career that you want, or even to be successful within certain majors, especially in highly competitive programs, rigorous programs in schools. So I would love to hear what role did those programs play for you? And then, yeah, are you still connected with them? Oh, yeah. So the high school program I just mentioned at the Scripps Research Institute, that's the first pipeline program I was in. That offered me the opportunity to just know what it was to do research and that I could come back and do research again as an undergrad student. So I remember reaching out to my um, 
my faculty mentor, the principal investigator, Dr. Carlos Barbas, um, asking him, hey, I'd love to come back now that I'm in college. And he pointed me towards their undergrad program, the Scripps Research Institute's SURF program. So just knowing that connection there and being able to hear and apply for another formal program working in the same lab was really important while being able to meet others who were coming from similar and different experiences as me and getting those tools to go on to the next step. I was also in two programs while in undergrad that were federally funded. One was the TRIO Student Support Services Program. And the second program was the TRIO McNair Scholars Program. And so shout out to USD McNair Scholars because I hype them up everywhere. That's really another part of that transformation that I went through was being admitted to that program, not knowing that I was actually being interviewed by the staff at the time for it. And realizing that through the eyes of my mentors and my friends that I can go on and pursue a doctorate degree. And in that situation, being a McNair scholar opened up so many opportunities, including applying to Stanford. And I give credit to my mentors and everything, but I know I earned it because I was the one putting in the hard work and doing it. But It took a long time for that switch to occur from rather than giving my mentors their flowers, receiving the flowers myself. Mm, So important. I think it can be, especially when you start to see doors opening, it can be almost second nature to just thank, you know, others for the opportunity and the access, but recognizing that you have that inherent ability and those skill sets and it's just a matter of it being recognized now at that point and and supported to get there. But I'm glad that you have taken some time to also recognize yourself for those accomplishments. I wanted you to dig a little bit deeper on pipeline programs and just mentors mostly because, I mean, even with programs like Code to College, we connect students with mentors, but we really emphasize also the importance of establishing a network and giving them access to a network. And so I think, it, you know, you you might initially end up in a, in a program that helps you cross one bridge and, and, you know, check one box off the goals and your trajectory that you're hoping to attain. But, you know, maintaining those relationships, asking questions and really conveying what it is that you're interested in. It's so crucial to really find out what else there is out there that you could potentially pursue. So... I love that that also was a part of your story. I, I want to also think about, as you talked about your uh, background, you identified as a scientist. So you identify as a scientist, you spent some time doing research in labs, the field of academia, especially pursuing your PhD. Um, but you kind of made a pivot. You're still in higher education, but now you are in a role that's more focused on diversity programs. So What prompted that change for you? So I definitely am confident in my scientific identity. I say I'm a scientist. I spent six years of my life getting my PhD. So that that scientist identity, it's one of those that no one's going to take away from me. Because of who I am and how I was raised and the values that I have, I've realized that 
values connected to justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging have just always been a part of who I am, like being the oldest and trying to not only be a role model and example for my younger sisters, but also like trying to create harmony and community within our group so that we're here to support each other, that we're not just sisters, like we're friends too. And so that connection and being someone who likes learning, who is, you know, a compassionate human being and just wanting to make sure that people feel like they fit in and belong has always been a part of who I am and a part of the activities and opportunities that I also explored in college and in um, graduate school. So while I was in college, I also was involved in my undergraduates women's center. While in graduate school, I was a student leader involved in one of our organizations, the Biomedical Association for the Interest of Minority Students or BioAIMS. And I also mentored people in the lab quite often because I realized that I was molded and shaped by having mentors who were supportive and encouraging and also by mentors whose styles were not aligned with my learning. So I wanted to be able to offer that, grow as a teacher and mentor and help shape the scientists that were coming into our lab for a summer experience. So it was this natural pivot or transition because it's always been a part of who I am. And what I appreciate about having a scientific background in this space is that I can read the literature or different articles and books and be able to understand a bit more about the data and the questions that are being asked and why they're being asked that. And then also just be creative and imagine and think about what if we were to change these institutions to be more inclusive and restructured for people like us, Selena. So I also am still science adjacent because, you know, when you're connecting with people and in this process for such a long time, you start to speak your own language, not the language of what's written in the paper, but that language to use as check-ins. So my friends in my PhD would, and I would ask each other, how's your experiment going? Which really meant, how are you? And with students now, like I have that lived experience and understanding of being someone who tried to learn how to code and it just didn't work for me or the experiment that just went wrong when it was supposed to be easy because you've done it a thousand times or that moment when you thought you broke expensive equipment and the freakouts that came like with that, oh no, what did I just do? So being able to just connect on that level has been incredible to build trust and understanding and to show that not only, hey, if I can do it, you can do it too. I've done it. This is my way. Let's show you what your way can be to go on in higher education.
I love that kind of uh, pay it forward opportunity in that, you know, you had that lived experience and now you're able to do that every day in your work, which is beautiful. One thing that comes to mind in terms of just questions and things I'm curious about within your story is the role that like your family and loved ones play. So you've spoken about like mentors and of course, like your Fly Collective and different supportive spaces that you've had to lean on within your journey. but. I think something that especially being a first generation student or maybe someone who's going against the grain within a a family of color, even amongst your friends. So when you are pursuing things within those realms, I think it's important to have the support um, and encouragement from loved ones in a community. So I would love to know, like, what support from your family and loved ones look like throughout your educational pursuits and Did you feel like they really understood the work that you did as you kind of continued to evolve within the field of academia and, you know, up to getting your PhD and now where you are today? Yeah, that's a great question. So my family and other loved ones, I'm really lucky that they've always had my back and have embraced every facet of who I am from being nerdy to just like, I want to hang out, chill and listen to I don't know why Bad Bunny came up, but Bad Bunny came up right now in my mind thinking about that. It was more so for me trying to understand and unpack what it meant when people were saying like, oh, you're at Stanford now. Like, oh my gosh. And feeling this, literally, I remember feeling this invisible pedestal being built underneath me and I was holding, I could feel myself holding my breath and my stomach turning because I felt like people were lifting me up and I just wanted to break that pedestal down and say like, no, I'm still me. I'm still going to enjoy the same things that I have before and will continue to enjoy. I just also happen to be a scientist on top of it. So we can still talk about like random stuff. I'm not above, you know, watching the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City now, like, or anything like that, you know? So the changes in understanding what I did was something that I learned to communicate with my family first, because I wanted them to still be connected to my journey, even though they didn't understand exactly what I was pipetting at the bench that day or what experiments I was running Or why was I at the microscope for like the thousandth time at for super late hours again or whatever. So it became really important for me being this trailblazer and this bridge from high school to undergrad and figuring out what that meant and sharing that knowledge. I didn't want to be on this bridge from undergrad to PhD and experiencing that change and growth in my life where I was going to be the only person standing alone on it. And so along the way, I would try to engage my family in these conversations of, oh, well, getting a PhD is kind of like going to school for the first two years, but also you work full time but have unlimited vacation, but also at the same time expected to do a lot of work and just kind of making it into these tangible, accessible examples to them. And then from there, being able to 
embed a little bit more of, oh, this is the project I'm working on. And it struggled a lot. Like there were a lot of moments where everyone was like, I don't know what you do. And I was like, okay, well, let me keep working on how I can communicate my science better. And that was a core value of my PhD advisor, Tim Stearns, um, making science accessible to a broad audience. And then I started thinking about and getting creative, like when explaining my science, how can I use different props or like talking with my hands to break down a bit more what it meant. So I think they understood what I did um, because after every little science presentation I've given, they started nodding a bit more like, oh, okay, I get it now. And then when I came, I gave my biggest science presentation I've ever given, my PhD defense, I had my sisters and other friends coming up to me as well as other friends in science saying like, this was one of the best talks they went to. They were able to take away at least the importance and significance of the work, not the detailed experiments and statistics behind it, which I was like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted you to grasp. And just really thanked them for trusting me for being able to be that bridge between science and to them. And it's now to the point where one of my cousins, he'll reach out to me regularly. If you read something in National Geographic or something else, he's like, hey, can we talk about what genome editing is? I'm like, yes, we can. Let me break this down for you. And I don't know. I just think it's really important that science is not locked in and only available to small groups of people because we can all be scientists. We're all we all have the ability to be creative, naturally curious, ask questions, think about how we can test those questions, and then make an observation, follow up with that, and then pivot, adapt, and move forward. I absolutely love you normalizing that within your your family and community of loved ones. Uh, your example with your little cousin is, is I think, such a great example because I, I think that that's a a great reflection of what can happen when you do start to normalize and have those conversations. You know, it initially may not be the case that everyone engages, understands or cares to listen, but then it's those small wins when they circle back and they're like, Hey, I heard this. Can you, can you talk to me about this? Or, you know, have you ever heard of this? They might not even know what to say about it, but I think having something to bring to the table and offer as like a mutual investment and what it is that you're working towards is really cool. So I absolutely love that. Absolutely. And it's gone into more recent or current topics. Like, thankfully, I've, my close family members and such were comfortable getting the COVID-19 vaccine and went as soon as they were eligible. But I was like, hey, if you want to talk about it, you know, I'll break it down for you and explain it to you so we can answer any questions that may be holding you back from it. And then now in my role, promoting equity and inclusion, thinking about, you know, taking the same skills that I've built as a scientist to break down those barriers and communicate why do we need these spaces to honor people from different cultural backgrounds? Why is this important? Because I just think it's a basic human right and should be something that's done anyway. And so those types of skills and conversations have been able to transcend just talking about so important 
thinking about just you as a woman of color, we've kind of talked and dove a little deeper into your various identities. I'm curious what it's been like for you identifying with all those intersectional identities being in your field. So, you know, most importantly, I, I mean, today our, our topic is Latinas in STEM, but you've talked about being a first generation student, low income, having a mixed ethnic identity. I mean, all of those go into that experience, but what has that been like for you? And have you been able to find spaces that offer a sense of belonging and community? I think specifically in your professional endeavors, because I know we talked a lot about some of those pipeline programs that offered that for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I have had so many moments where I did feel supported in my field studying centrosomes and cilia, um, studying cell biology broadly, and felt comfortable being a woman of color in these spaces. I have had moments where I felt like I was not supported as a scientist, which Oftentimes, like I tend to focus on the bad than the good, but I'm really thankful that overall my experience has been finding community members who honor me for me and that I could be a scientist who also was actively engaged in advocacy work during my PhD and now professionally. So when thinking about those situations where I didn't feel like I belonged It was really when I was navigating what it meant for me to be in these educational situations and wondering for myself if I was meant to be here, if I could do it, if I could earn my PhD. Because again, this is something that the only people I knew doing this were professors in college or distant mentors, not anyone who was a family member or a close family friend or other loved one in that way. So I felt, and like we talked about pedestal being built, like I felt like I was an imposter because someone decided to build this pedestal, including random strangers. When I told them I was at Stanford and I just didn't want to disappoint or let anyone down, especially myself. So being in those new environments and wondering Do I have what it takes? Am I smart enough to be here? I don't even know how to design an experiment. I don't know how to write a proposal or like I barely know how to ask a science question were those thoughts in my head. Then there were moments that either there were subtle comments being made or these really impactful negative situations that really brought me down. So those subtle comments, like even when they were meant to praise me saying, oh, you're Mexican-American and you're a shoo-in for that fellowship or that grant or whatever because of how you identify and your activities beyond science, that really hurt and made me wonder about, well, this person thinks about me in this way and doesn't didn't mention anything about my science, my ability to be a scientist. Are other people wondering this too? Did I somehow trick someone to getting in here or am I just filling a space or a quota? So it was those moments where I had people who 
were in my hype crew or my loved ones and supporters who I could talk through what that experience meant to me. And then also other damaging experiences where um, meant like perceived mentors were really being hurtful and giving criticism in a way that was rooted in a lot of blame and shame. And I don't know if that's the way that they thought mentorship should be blindly applied, but that's not how I like to be mentored. That's not how I like to mentor other people. And especially feeling vulnerable, the first one to do this in my family and in my little community, it was, it was really hurtful. I wondered often, like, can I do this? Can I finish this? So I'm just really thankful that I found not only my family members to lean on, but friends and peers and other mentors who had gone through the PhD experience or who have an understanding of what it meant, what it meant to be in education, who could support me. And now professionally, I feel well supported that I can actively advocate for myself in new ways. And also working so closely with students, how do I give this back to them and help them walk through negative situations in a way that is real, but also with some hope behind it? So like balancing that criticism, but keeping it real with them and saying like, hey, this is where we are and this is what we can do to help uplift you. That is so important. And I appreciate your vulnerability, sharing your story and your experience. And you you kind of alluded to it, but, you know, naturally the next question for me that comes to mind is what does it look like then knowing that you hear similar experiences from students and, you know, you're able to observe, you know, how things are changing, but also how things are still very similar for them even today. So I'm curious, what are some ways you think your field could continue to work to make those spaces and environments more inclusive for whether it be other Latinas or just other individuals who are from underrepresented identities and backgrounds who are coming into programs and following a similar path as trailblazers? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think about it a lot in my current role and tying it back to what does it mean to belong? Well, first, we have to see that there are people who look similar to us or have shared experiences. So I mentioned them earlier, Latinos Who Lunch, my favorite podcast, used to have a tagline that they would end every episode saying visibility leads to representation and representation matters. And that's something that just resonated so true to me thinking about what it means to be in the scientific community and how we can continue to break down those barriers and first bring people in, but beyond bringing people in, creating opportunities through having spaces or ways to connect with community members who they can, we can share with each other what it's been like to just be in higher education. When have we felt supported with champions and allies? When have we not? And how can we continue to make our community members accountable for creating spaces that are truly welcoming and that allow people to be authentically who they are? And 
and thinking about that, we've I've noticed that there have been changes in conversation from when I was a PhD student where we can talk more openly about mental health and well-being. We can talk more about mentoring and what support looks like and we're still evolving those conversations to make sure that they do honor people without tokenizing them like we talked about at the beginning and that's giving me some hope it's also a privilege where i have the opportunity to receive trust from students from other colleagues in higher ed administration and be that bridge and be able to listen to concerns on both ends, share them and find other co-conspirators to think about how we can creatively work on making academia beyond just accessible for who's in the community. Like how do we make education more available to folks? And how do we build coalitions within our community across different institutions? So yeah, it kind of reminds me of thinking about some quotes that I've heard before, like one in Spanish, and I'm sorry if my pronunciation is off, but tu lucha es mi lucha. So your struggle is my struggle or your fight is my fight. And I think it's just something that we generally need to adopt more when having um, these DEI or JEDI initiatives when building these coalitions. It's this understanding of your fight is going to be different from my fight and I can still adopt it as my struggle to amplify you up without it being this competition or this race on who gets what resources or who gets support when, especially when thinking about the voices in our communities who have not been uplifted to the same regard as others. Mm, I love that quote. It's very impactful, I think, in it all encompassing and in terms of truly not just like your experience and your work, but any work when you're working alongside groups that are different and individuals that are different from you, which honestly is everyone's work. But, you know, I I think we are in unique positions where we are serving others. And in those roles, I think you truly need to have that compassionate, empathetic understanding where you're able to be a part of that journey and fighting for something that's just not going to benefit you. So I love that. I would love to leave off on before we kind of wrap up things with a question for you. If you were mentoring your younger self, what would you tell her or what would you teach her? Oh, that is a very, very good question. (sighs) What would I tell my younger self? I think my younger self was very fixed on getting things right and getting them right the first time, learning more about how imposter fears show up. I know that I can be a perfectionist and am blessed to have been naturally gifted and learning different things very quickly. So I would first tell my younger self a set of powerful mantras that I also give and share with my students. So just starting off saying, you are strong, you are powerful, you are worthy, you are beautiful, and you are capable. 
and letting that sit in and just being like, yeah, I am. (laughs) I'm getting a little emotional thinking about this out loud and everything. I think I would also tell my younger self that when experiencing these new challenges, first, it's okay. And you will find creative ways to approach and overcome them. It's okay to not know the answer to everything. It's okay to explore. And I really appreciate now that I've been able to be flexible, willing to adapt to new opportunities. So just keeping that open mind. And I would go back and hype my past self up. Like I was that little hustler asking questions, trying to figure out like, okay, who do I need to know? How do I get there? Who can help me out? How can I help them out? So I would just say, continue to do that. And as you're meeting people that you've built trust with, be respectful, thank them for those opportunities, and then also take the knowledge that you're learning and share it out with other people. And that's really how we can make change one person at a time is by being able to pay it forward that way. Again, circling back to that element of paying it forward. Um, I love how much that's shown up in your story, Miranda. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure sharing this space with you today and getting to hear more about your story. I will just say I, I completely forgot when I first started this episode to introduce myself. And we are potentially going to have listeners who aren't too familiar with the Technically 200 podcast. And so I did introduce myself in season or episode one of our season four. So if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and check it out. But my name is Selena Montalongo. I'm the assistant program director at Coyote College. I work with the Technically 200 podcast along with our Vision 2024 initiative which has a specific focus on supporting our Black and Latina young women venturing into STEM careers and majors. I just want to thank you, Miranda, again today for just coming in and being vulnerable and open with us and really dropping some gems for our listeners. So we appreciate you. Thank you so much, Selena. I appreciate you and being able to have this opportunity to share a little bit about me. Thank you again. Thanks again for listening to today's Technically 200 episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com. 